and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a therapist, podcaster and also former journalist. Zach Fine brands himself as the Masculinity Therapist, which is the name of his podcast, and he focuses on helping men and boys predominantly with their mental health. He has a particular focus on helping divorced men through a method he employs called the ceasefire method and advocates for greater awareness around the UK's family court system and how men can navigate it properly to ensure they are able to see their children post-separation. Zach is also a facilitator at Temper Domestic Violence, which offers a therapeutically informed course to people whose abusive behaviours in their intimate relationships is a concern. They work intensively and effectively with violent, aggressive and abusive men and women who need help to change their emotionally driven behaviour. They are currently looking to expand their group of facilitators, so if you want to find out more, I will give more information about them at the end of the podcast. In this episode, we chart Zach's professional journey from starting out in journalism for a number of years to working in the City of London, at The Sun, The Mirror and a period of time he spent living in France. He then unexpectedly had a child with his then partner and moved back to the UK to live closer to her and switched careers to public relations. After a few years of this, he had a breakdown and moved back to his childhood area of Cornwall where he did corporate copywriting and a lot of surfing. After realising he was drifting in life, he began volunteering at the Samaritans charity and took the plunge to train as a therapist which he qualified as in 2018. Since qualifying, he has been helping men, as I've said, and we discuss his work, the Masculinity Therapist podcast, the issue of parental alienation, and the stigma men feel in speaking about these issues when they affect them. For Zach's own mental health, we discuss fatherhood and the challenges that brought him becoming a young father, a period of depression he went through, and a very unfortunate sexual accident which, whilst he's able to laugh about it now, caused him a huge amount of sexual shame, trauma and caused him to spiral into a very dark place with his mental health when it happened. We finish by discussing his decision to cut down his drinking altogether in order for him to be the best therapist and person he can be. So this is how my conversation with Zach Fine went. Zach, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. When I came across you on Twitter, I saw you were doing such amazing work to help men and boys. You obviously have the podcast, you have loads of other things, YouTube, everything in between. So first of all, how are you on this Sunday, mate? I'm very well. I'm having a bit of a family weekend. Me and my son and my girlfriend went and got the Christmas tree yesterday and decorated it. And it was just really nice having a normal morning. 
but then I started to go into a bit of a tech hole, realizing my laptop wasn't working properly. <laughs> We've both had tech issues this morning, mate. So let's hope it falls through by the end of this podcast. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk yeah. about, and I want to dive straight in. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show, mate? Yes, totally. We're going to start your pod, mate, by talking about your professional journey as you've had such a kind of varied and winding career to get to the point where you are now. So I want to briefly talk about university first because you went to Goldsmiths University in London and studied anthropology, which sounds pretty straightforward. However, Mm. you joined a year early, so you must have been pretty bright. How and why did that come about? And tell me about your experience here as you uh, technically weren't legally allowed to drink, right? (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I was just a year ahead from a very young age, not because I was bright, but I think it was just a sort of practical thing, really. My mum wanted to move me to a, a good primary school, and I don't know why. I still don't really understand why, but I, I was just always a year younger. It was something to do. We moved from Yorkshire to Cornwall when my parents separated, so it might have been something to do with the timings, I don't know. But the actual reason why I ended up on that anthropology course is, isn't very edifying. My first choice was journalism. My second choice was journalism. And my third choice was just this thing that I didn't really know what it was that my friend Rachel said, oh, put this in if you don't know, because she was going to go and do it. I supposed to take a year out. Then I got home one night drunk and stoned for after being at a friend's house party and decided to steal my mum's car to drive to a beach party and I wrote it off and luckily I didn't get prosecuted or anything from the police because I was too young and she didn't she didn't want to prosecute me but uh, (laughs) but she did say look you either fuck off to university now on clearing or you stay and because I was working to save up to go traveling for a year she said the other option is stay and pay me back for the damage to the car and so I phoned around and I got in this course at Goldsmiths on clearing. It was like about a week before the start of term. So I just ended up in this new life, which was great. It was brilliant. Landed on my feet and it's still serving me well. That thread of trying to understand human behavior. You spoke about traveling there. And after your degree, you dipped your hand in journalism for a number of years after coming back from doing some traveling in Latin America. So tell me about this period of your life now. The traveling or the bit when I got back and uh, let's tried to both. figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, that was a really good patch, actually. So I, in my first year at university, I started going out with a, a really lovely woman, young woman called Marie Finnish from Finland. And then we sort of settled into this domestic stable relationship, which was really nourishing for me. And when we finished, we came back to Cornwall, where I'm from, and worked for a while. And then we saved up and went off for a year and we started in Mexico and went overland down through most countries to Panama. Then we flew to Peru, went overland across to Brazil, where we ended up about 10 months later and flew back. It was great, really good. During that time, I I went off on my own surfing and she did some other stuff. It was good. You did your journalism diploma in Brighton and then made the decision to move to the Big Smoke in London where you studied and worked at a news agency in Canary Wharf. So given your Cornwall roots and you're filling some stereotypes by saying you love surfing, so there's definitely one there. Mm. How big a change was this for you and your mental health to permanently live here rather than just study as you did in Goldsmiths? Well, um, it's interesting. I feel like I've had all the way along since being a child, I feel like I've had 
little silos, not little silos, but my life's had different flavours. I was living in Cornwall when I grew up, but I would go to my dad's in Yorkshire in the school holidays. The people I knew in Cornwall, you know, so for example, my best mate was my cousin on my mum's side. He never ever went with me to Yorkshire. He didn't know that side of my life and my friends at school didn't really either. So I I always felt like I, I just sort of would step from one life to the other and I got very used to that. When I began working in, first of all, I I studied journalism in Brighton. So I had this kind of one year studying for my, uh, what was it called? NCTJ postgrad diploma in newspaper journalism. So it's about, pretty sure it was only one year, but it was great. I just got employment straight away. But that one year in Brighton was was this great experience in itself. Made loads of friends, had loads of good experiences, a lot of partying. And then, yeah, it was straight into London. And within three months working at a news agency in Canary Wharf, I got offered a job in France in the world's first ever outsourced newspaper production office. So around that time, that was 2008, obviously the news industry was really shitting itself and no one could afford to pay newspaper, you know, sub-editors and journalists the same. So pretty much the whole production of the Dublin papers that I was working on was, we were doing it from this little town in the south of France. It was quite random, but it was a really interesting experience for someone fresh like me in my early 20s because I got given loads of pages to take responsibility for in these. Main one was the Irish Independent, which is the biggest selling paper. And then there was these other tabloids, the Evening Herald in Dublin and some other ones. So yeah, it was great. And then the reason I came back to London in the end to work on other newspapers was because I had had a child and my child's mother, we didn't stay together, but uh, yeah, she was living, (laughs) she was living in Barcelona, but decided to move to London. I went from France to London after another year to see if I could be around more. And luckily I managed to sort of land on my feet a bit and got job, got work at the mirror and the sun and the Metro Mm -hmm. and the mail online. Yeah. We'll talk about fatherhood a bit later in the podcast, mate, but you switched careers when your daughter's mother moved to Liverpool. So you left London, switched to PR and moved to Yorkshire. However, you didn't enjoy this career move quite as much as journalism and it ended up being quite bad for your mental health. So who's the Zach we meet at this point? So uh, it's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully a bit more integrated. I think that's what the last... I'm I'm turning 40 in about a month so I've I have been thinking about this stuff. Looking back on my 30s. Hmm. I had a breakdown basically when I was 30. I turned 30 just after I moved to Yorkshire and you're right yeah what you said. So there were these different stages. So first of all I moved to London to be closer to my daughter. And then her mother moved to Liverpool for very good reasons, but I found I found that extraordinarily challenging. She wanted to be closer to her family, which is what single mothers tend to do. So I did the traveling every other weekend until she was starting school. And then I realized that doesn't really work. I'm going to have to be closer, geographically closer. Yeah, so I, I moved into PR and on paper, there's a lot of crossover if you work with I was a newspaper sub-editor, so I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'll probably be quite good at PR. Actually, what I discovered was I don't think I was very good, and it's quite difficult to do a job that you're not very good at. You know, one of our basic needs is to feel like we're competent and we do good work and we produce value, arguably men more so. I mean, 
we could have a huge conversation about that, but the primacy of work and all that. So I struggled and I, I just kept pushing harder and harder because I thought, well, I'm not good enough at this. I need to just push harder and push harder. And, and I sort of went into a bit of a spiral. I think that's what tipped me into the spiral, but there were other issues as well that hadn't been resolved to do with a lot of things, but maybe to do with being, yeah, trying to come to terms with being the father of a child I, I saw and had a good relationship with, but it's it was... It was a lot. I mean, I was 25 when she was born and I wasn't really, I think I did pretty well overall, but something happened when I turned 30 that everything kind of just hit me and not being happy with my work was the big one. And so, yeah, I'm trying to come back to your question. Who (laughs) who is that you see now? Well, I'm, (laughs) I'm so grateful that I found my way into the work I do now. I think I spend a lot of time sitting in uncertainty I can recognize actually sometimes I I long for a bit more of the structure and a bit more of the tangibility of some of the work I used to do before where there something was just good or it wasn't something was good enough or it wasn't and in the therapeutic space there's just so much ambiguity so I've got very comfortable sitting in in uncertainty for example I was trying to write an article over the last two weeks that I was asked to write and I'm finding it really tricky. So I'm really out of my flow and ability to produce good stuff to read, let's say. So I'm not particularly happy about that. But that's something I'd like to bring back into my life and get more balance on. Hopefully you'll get there, mate. So let's manifest it on the podcast. You moved back to Cornwall to try and reset your life at this point. And you mentioned a Jordan Peterson quote to me off air, you said, if your heart's not in it, it hurts you. So did you feel like your heart was hurting as much as your body and mind were yeah yeah I think that quote is specifically about writing things you don't believe in and what happened was I discovered in the PR space that I was terrible at being salesy you know the idea of phoning a newspaper and selling in a story that you don't even really think is very good it's like it's very hard on on different levels but but then I, I was good at writing and I did do some good stuff, I think. But what happened in the end was I was just writing a lot of stuff that I just didn't really like or particularly believe in. And, I've been and there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very lucky in a way. I'm fortunate. I got a lot of work referred to me through my father. He is a business consultant and he got into the dental sector he really thrived there just got loads of clients and helped all these private dental practices make more money basically and do better they all needed websites and they needed blogs and all the rest of it so I ended up doing a lot of content for that space and (laughs) the quote when you said the quote what came up immediately for me is this feeling of writing copy for lip fillers dermal fillers botox dermabrasion all this stuff that it's changing your body and face it's a repeat purchase so it's a really good business model but but there was something that stuff like that that it doesn't really fit with what I understand as a sort of healthy self-improvement without wanting to sound too judgy you know I get why people do it but for me what was I doing I was I didn't care about the work and you know it caught up with me I think I just became cynical Mm. and didn't feel good I want to move on to your 
transition into the work you do now, which is therapy and helping men, because it started when you were doing some volunteering work with the charity, the Samaritans, when you were in Yorkshire and you continued this mm-hmm. in Cornwall, in their Cornwall-based branch, I imagine. So what was it about yeah. this work that gave you some purpose or removed that nihilistic feeling and made therapy a viable option? It was the feeling driving home after a night shift at the Samaritans. I had this multiple times. I just felt joy because I'd been the one that someone got to speak to when they were on the edge and really close to killing themselves. And that was voluntary, that job. But I had to, at the time, the way it was, was in order to do it, you had to commit to a certain amount of shifts a month. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, but it would have to include one night shift. So it's probably like three normal shifts and one night shift a month. But it was the feeling of I've done something great, something actually really is worthwhile. And it, in contrast to this feeling of, yeah, just I'm just doing stuff for money all the time. It's as simple as that. It felt good in my system, in my body, in my mm. soul. And so I immediately, well, not immediately, but I started looking at how do I get to do that all the time? You know, how do I get to do that for money so that I don't have to do this other stuff? I just wanted to do more of it. That was really all I was Mm. looking at. So I found a route to do it. It was just just a case of doing um, another diploma. I've had a couple of therapists on this podcast, Zach, and the listeners will be interested to know that therapy is very much the wild west and pretty much anyone can declare themselves a therapist if they want to despite the process of most good therapists getting qualified and doing all the qualifications so a where did you get the motivation to study again for a long time because it does take a long time given the age you were and the degrees you'd already done and also Mm. what did that journey that new journey teach you about yourself as well it was a Tricky decision at first. I wasn't sure. And it was a bit like choosing my children's names in a way. My experience on that has been sort of a light on an idea and it doesn't, I'm not really sure. And then time goes by and there's nothing else really comes in. So it's like, oh, well, I suppose I'll do that then. That's what it was like. It was, I was thinking, is it really right? Because I had sort of preconceptions as well about what counsellors were like. And yeah, it seemed like I was maybe a bit young and maybe, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. But what uh, what happened initially was I had to do, I realised the quickest way to go from not having any qualification. You're totally right as well. It's not regulated. So you could just say that you're a holistic therapist or you could say anything and just start practicing. You wouldn't be able to become a member of an organization like the BACP or the UKCP, but that doesn't particularly matter. But the first bit I did was a a very simple course called a level two in counseling skills. And I was dipping my toe in the water and I was open-minded and I just had some really good experiences on that. And it piqued my interest. I realized I could skip a few levels that way of doing it there's level two three four five six and it goes on because I already had a degree I was able to go from after doing the level two I went to a level five which was a two-year diploma and yeah it was a great choice in the end it worked really well for me 
I want to dive into the work you do as a therapist now. So before we talk about your brilliant podcast and, and the work you do in the online space, can you just tell me about something you employ? It's a method. I don't know how you want to describe it, but it's called the ceasefire method. And you use it mm. specifically to help your male clients who have gone through divorce. So tell me and the listeners what it is and how it helps them. It's a three-month online course. It's a th therapeutic course, and it's specifically designed for fathers who have had a high-conflict family separation or divorce and are having trouble with accessing. I hate that language, so I'm not going to say that, but just the relationship they have with their children has been blocked completely or to some extent. Partially, yeah. Partially, and usually they will have been in family court or will be thinking about going to family court. So it's a combination of group work all together and then yeah, every week, and then every week the men have a one-to-one -one session with me. So they have these two things running parallel for three months, and it's really powerful. Group work's always really powerful, but the combination I found really works well. It's, it's a very challenging space to work in and actually mm. i think the real power of of this approach it's not really particularly anything i'm doing it's really more about getting men with a similar experience who are feeling suicidal and isolated together and realizing that the problem's much bigger than them so that really addresses the shame often which is something around normalizing the experience the fact is that we do live in a culture where fatherhood is not recognized for the for the value it brings we still have social stereotypes around men and fatherhood and if you are a man and you find yourself in that situation and you like I went through this myself with my second child I went to family court and I experienced huge anger and mm. often for men the natural instinctual response given that our child is in is being harmed effectively the natural response totally understandably is to go into fight mode and the, unfortunately the family court system punishes family, you for that i don't want to sound too conspiratorial but it's very dysfunctional and one of the problems is it's adversarial so you get an angry father and then you get a whole class of professional family law professionals who feed off that conflict some of them are very good. I'm not I'm not saying all family lawyers are blood sucking vampires, but but it's but all it's blood a, but all blood sucking vampires are family lawyers. So is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very unfortunate mix. There's some really good family lawyers out there. I know some personally and again, some of the judges are fine. Some of them are just not aware of I don't think in my view, not aware of oh, hmm. They can get played. By, yeah. There's an assumption that women are always victims and men are always perpetrators. That's a huge thing I could unpack. But ceasefire method is my best attempt at, so first of all, enabling the men to register their grief, their shock and their grief at the loss of their life partner and the loss of the future that they thought they would have with their family. Then it's looking at what is actually going on, what's motivating my ex-partner's behavior and what's my responsibility for creating this mess? I've obviously co-created it. So I'm trying to gently bring the men out of this angry victim place where everything's someone else's fault. Uh, the family court is 
is corrupt and sexist. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. But what are you going to do about it as a man? What do you actually have control over now? Because we're talking about your relationship with your kids. And, I mean, me and many other people have been trying to get reform in the family court. Maybe it'll happen at some point. But it's not going to happen next year. So what do we do in the meantime? So I'm trying to enable these men to stop acting out and take responsibility. And that's a pretty difficult thing to Mm. swallow. So it's got to be done very, very respectfully and empathically, but it's done for them and their children ultimately. And, And they do, by the end, they do feel different. It's not like a magic bullet. It's not going to fix everything. The idea is it sets them up for a better medium to long-term outcome. Mm. So we do all sorts of things around like, what's my attachment style? How am I in relationships? So if I'm going to have another one in the future, what do I avoid? And uh, what else? Things like nonviolent communication. So how do I communicate with anyone, but including my ex-partner in the way that's most likely to produce good results? Again, it's not guaranteed. She may ignore me or carry on being abusive, but at least I'm doing my best. There's other elements as well, but that's just a few of them. Well, I spoke with a brilliant guest called Nathan Wilson, who runs Dad's Advocates, which is an advocacy group that helps men who, like him, to gain access, proper access over their children. He had a high-conflict ex. His high-conflict ex made you know, false allegations of sexual abuse against him, which were obviously completely false. And like you said about there, about the victim versus oppressor model and how... That's just completely outdated in, in today's modern society, I feel, but it's still obviously present in the family courts. There's loads of other things we could talk about. However, what I do want to ask before we move on, because we've got loads more to talk about, how do you personally feel when those men get their lives back on track, take responsibility, take ownership, and you know, hopefully get custody of their children, whether it's partial, whether it's full, whether it's something that they were just hoping for that you know is viewed as success to them from the position they were in? I feel great. It was what we were touching on earlier. Something worthwhile has happened. I've just facilitated something that wanted to happen. But somehow I've been allowed to be a part of that. And it's a beautiful feeling. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything is fixed, you know, and and a man has custody of his child or, or even a reasonable amount of contact. It could just mean... so. The last course I ran, we did a check-in after a year just to see where everyone was. And I read back to the guys. I had asked them in in the final session a year before, where do you want to be in a year? And I read them back what they had told me. All the men that came, at least a couple couldn't make it, but they were all way beyond where they wanted to be. So it's that power of manifesting and, and just charging up a vision and being witnessed by other men in a similar situation. Something happens. So that's a beautiful thing to be part of. Mm. It's it's for the kids as well, you know. At some point, even if these kids aren't getting to see their dads, they will in the end. And if their dad is in a a better place mentally and physically, when that happens, then it's brilliant. I want to move on to the work that you do in the online space around men's mental health, Zach. So you set up a podcast and YouTube channel called The Masculinity Podcast. So why did you want to take yourself out of the private space with your clients, which obviously you're doing great work in, and into the public space and expose that vulnerability? Uh, It's a great step. Thank you. It's actually called The Masculinity Therapist. 
That's my ah, YouTube okay. channel. Apologies. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. Well, it sort of gets to a point which is I find it almost impossible to do something if I'm, I used to be a bit of a perfectionist, so I'd want to work out how to do things just right. And then at some point I let go of all that and realized I'm just not going to do things I want to do unless I just sort of go for it and yeah, get it maybe more or less okay. That YouTube channel was a case in point. I didn't have the time or the inclination to set up a proper podcast. My impression is you're very organized and strategic and planning and everything's <laughs> try to be you know, mate. <laughs> yeah but for me it was like I just want to have as I go along these conversations with certain people occur to me and these opportunities just crop up and I all I wanted to do was to be able to without again I don't I, I don't really do any planning for the conversations either I just invite people to come for a chat and we have a chat and sometimes it turns into a really interesting one so I just wanted to really capture some of these things because I thought they were really valuable for other people. And there's, I think it does something. I think all these conversations do actually have a tangible impact on ignorance. Look at the conversations that Chris Williamson, is that his oh, name? Oh, he's great. He's one of the best. Yeah, yeah he's, he's getting so many views and listens. And I think things like that are actually helping turn the tide on ignorance mm. around men, men's issues. And so in my own very sort of haphazard, humble, <laughs> sketchy way, I wanted to just, I know for a fact that some of the conversations I've been having are really well worth listening to because the people I'm talking to, that's just how I feel. So I'm sure there's other people out there that would feel the same. And I've had some good feedback, but yeah, there isn't really a, a particular structure or theme i did a series of chats with a a 20 year old guy pablo who approached me he was studying journalism and he wanted to do a feature piece on me and about men's issues so we did that and then it just occurred to me to suggest to him why don't we do a series of chats you know record them because you're a young man you're experiencing all this stuff really for the first time you know he'd gone through secondary school and then he was doing a degree so in a way I'm it was like having conversations from different parts of the life cycle I'd gone through family court and I was experiencing that but he was still he had the memory of school fresh and he was experiencing what it's like to try and date girls when you're a 20 year old man now what's the average girl's attitude to men so that was fascinating so we did I don't know how many we did we planned to do 10 I think we did about seven it was great. We spoke about fathers earlier in the pod, mate. And fatherlessness is an issue you want to discuss when it comes to children. It's something I'm a very big passionate advocate for in, in trying to tackle. Why was this a focus for you? Well, my experience growing up, I wouldn't class myself as fatherless because I'm very much not fatherless. I have a wonderful father and he's really giving and present in my life and more so as I've got older in a way I feel because I can relate to him as a man but it did feel like a wound I guess when I look back growing up it was just a there was a bit of a hole really because I didn't see enough of him 
And that's just the way it went because my parents got divorced and my mum moved a long way away. And it was an echo of what I was describing earlier in my life. You know, it's funny how we our lives repeat these scripts, but it was almost this, exactly the same distance. So my mum, you know, it's Cornwall to Leeds. So it was really only school holidays. So I felt the absence of a father and a man in my day-to-day life. And I felt that sadness. There is just a sadness there that awareness of other friends having that at home when I'd go to stay over at friends' houses and a longing for it. And I didn't have a stepdad until much later. I was about 14. So that whole period from four to 14, I missed missed my dad a lot. And I was lucky to have uh, an uncle locally. Who I used to be best friends with. I still am very, very tight with my cousin, same age. So I used to just go over to his house a lot. And yeah, I I sort of come to realize over my whole life, and particularly as I've been involved in therapy, training and and then working, just how big this public health problem is. It's massive mm. and it, it's directly linked to loads of really acute problems that we see like most most people in prison are male and most of those all all gang members out of it um, uh, yeah (laughs) yeah they didn't have dads this isn't really like a point anyone everyone knows it you just have to go outside and look around and like look at people you know who've had dads in their lives and people who haven't and you'll see it's like staring us all in the face so i get really angry when people say uh, it's not such a big deal and you know something good about single motherhood or whatever to give you an example there was a piece a cover article in therapy today which is the trade magazine that the BACP sends its members every month BACP is British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapy so I'm a member of that organization one of the things I've agreed to do for my membership is to uphold the reputation of my profession so I've got to be careful how I talk about this but Mm-hmm. There was an article on the front page called Sons of Our Fathers in November 2019. And the author, Manu Bazu, in the article said that fatherlessness might not necessarily be a bad thing. And Holy you could argue shit. You could argue that, okay, if it's if the father's abusive or this or that, then in that specific case, sure. yeah, yeah. I get that. But sorry. I'm really not on board with that message. But my concern has been we don't see really any representation of positive masculinity and, you know, the profound pro-social qualities of masculinity and fatherhood. Those messages don't seem to be there in my profession, in the content of the BACP or other places, that there are some places where, for example, there's the male section of the British Psychological Society. They espouse this new stuff on male psychology and positive masculinity so I'm really really loving that and I'm trying to do my bit in in sort of spreading it and bringing it into the BACP I I submitted a resolution before the AGM this year asking them to affirm the male friendly therapy principles that the BPS had published and their answer was a bit sort of wishy-washy but nevertheless earlier this month they did publish a little paper on how to better recognize depression in men and how to encourage men to seek support i'm sort of actually quite optimistic now 
But mm. to go back to your question, fatherlessness, I think it's at the core of a lot of our collective problems. I think there's been a war on fatherhood in the West for a few decades now. Our civilization is, is sort of built on principles of strength, rationality, logic, responsibility, structure, hard work. The, owning is, your shit this is, is all one stuff. of my big mantras owning your shit yeah. <laughs> yeah and we've gone from that being the high value stuff to victimhood being the high value stuff i want to also talk about something called parental alienation now i will add my usual caveat that fathers can do this as well but in the context of our conversation and surprisingly through my research on this subject i also discovered quite a lot of literature and opinion leaders some of them very well known who seem to deny that this exists which is bonkers to me so how have you seen parental alienation affect fathers and the men that you work with suicidal ideation professor ben hine yes great lad great lad he's gotten a lot of abuse recently as well for just for talking about it well he will do because he's he's really nailing it he said to me that He's calculated that 20,000 men per year are becoming suicidal as a result of alienating behaviours. He differentiates between parental alienation and parental alienating behaviours. So you can have a few. It just means that you can talk about it without having to pass some kind of threshold. Because it's like you said, a lot of people out there have a vested interest in arguing that this thing doesn't exist and it's pseudoscience. But Ben's book... I've got it here, actually. Parental Alienation, a Contemporary Guide for Parents, Practitioners and Policymakers. It just sets it out. It's it's really not complicated. It's just anything that sabotages a child's relationship with its parents and wider family. And it can be conscious or unconscious from the resident parent. I'm conscious of time. So I want to mm. move on to something which is really interesting. And it's it's part of a working group that you're in at the moment, which is developing a 10-point manifesto for how the wider men's movement can be affected. So tell me about those points and how you ended up being in this working group. Excellent, yes. I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to find it. Um, (laughs) I'll leave this in. (laughs) So where is it? It'll be on my website. This was a really great experience for me. So I was approached by a guy called Mike Bell and I'd, I'd met him on the circuit sort of thing at one of these conferences I think it was a British Psychological Society conference. Mike Bell is a really, I think he's a great man. He's contributed a lot to this space in the last few years. He's very humble, but he set up the all-party parliamentary group on men and boys, and he's involved in campaigning for reform to the family court system. He's very good at bringing structure and action to a space where actually a lot of men who are interested in this stuff have been traumatized Mm. and and are very poor at follow-through and... Mike's (laughs) Mike's <laughs> Mike's identified that in this report that we came up with. So I found it. There's a longer document that goes with it, which I encourage your listeners to to find, which explains our process. So it was really it was like a study group that we did earlier this year for a few months, and we had Mike Bell, Joffrey Breeze, who's a uh, he's a what coach, a <laughs> and yeah, it's a great name. Don't know if it's real. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't sound uh, I think real. It is, probably. <laughs> no offense, mate. <laughs> He's involved in a band of brothers, which is a male mentoring charity that I've been involved with a bit as well. Joe Horton, who runs a podcast for dads, and Vincent McGovern, who is 
I think, a brilliant man who's been involved in, what's it called? It's going out of my head now. It's not, they've changed the name to Both Parents Matter, but it used to be Families Need Fathers. So he was the chair of the London branch, I think, of Families Need Fathers. And he's taken his personal court case. He kept making challenges higher and higher up. So he had really notable successes in campaigning just for children to be able to see their fathers. And then Martin Seeger, who's a Yes, I know Martin. I know of Martin Seeger, sorry. Very good man. Yeah. He'd be a good guy to get on, actually. He's, he's brilliant. If you're listening, Martin, so, feel free to drop me a DM, mate. So we were trying to work out why... I'll read you the first paragraph of what we said we were doing. It says, if we look around, we see men and boys facing disadvantages in many walks of life. And alongside this, some attempts to improve the situation. However, we have to admit that we are not doing well. The anti-male narrative still dominates. Gamma bias affects the media so that the bad deeds of a few men are taken to reflect men as a whole, while male suffering remains almost invisible to the public and legislature. A group of us has been meeting to try and understand how to create more effective action on men and boys in the UK. This article, you can find it on my website, zachfine.co.uk. Its title is Could Do Better, an inquiry into effective action for men and boys. And I'll just scroll down to the the thing you mentioned, which is the manifesto for an effective men's movement. Do you want me to just go through it and read it out? I think that is affecting the technical uh, <laughs> technical uh, speed of this podcast, mate. So maybe just a quick yeah, view okay. and then, uh, then we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, fair point. So what it is, is it's 10 points to promote a message of positive masculinity that men can embrace, families can benefit from, society is crying out for, and politicians can support, and courts can fully recognise, which will benefit everyone. So what we were trying to do is just make this a pill that everyone can swallow, and it doesn't put anyone else's nose out of joint. And so we're not going after anyone, we're not blaming anyone. It's basically what you said earlier, owning our own shit as men, and just saying, right, this is what leading this space looks like. Before we reflect, mate, you spoke about something called gamma bias, which might be a factor in the issues that we've been discussing. And I remember this being mentioned on a trigonometry episode with someone. I can't remember who it was annoyingly off the top of my head. But they basically allude to the fact that when it comes to certain men's reporting on their issues, some media outlets will like desex the reporting. Mm-hmm. Just explain what this is then for the listeners um, and how it affects the wider coverage. Okay, so this theory says that there's no great conspiracy, but this is just an adaptive, innate way of interpreting male and female behavior. It's framing any negative harm, any harm that men commit, their maleness is magnified in any reporting of that. Any harm that a female commits, her femaleness is minimized. And conversely, any good stuff that men do, their maleness is minimized. Any good stuff that women do, their femaleness is accentuated. And their femaleness is celebrated even. So, you know, if, uh, let's say, a building is on fire and a firefighter goes in and rescues a baby, no one will ever mention that it was a male firefighter, unless it's a female firefighter, and then it will be that will be the actual story, is a female firefighter has, has done this incredible thing. You hear a lot about how bad men are when a woman gets raped and murdered or a child gets killed by a man you know it's this evil man toxic masculinity but actually most child murders are the number of infanticide mums tend to do it more you don't hear that but it's there in the data 
Or like, for example, if a couple do it, it tends to be the man that's mentioned more in the coverage of the infanticide, mm, I think. Exactly. I want to reflect on your professional journey, mate, because I know we are a little bit rushed for time. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement on it? Ooh, wow. Um, mm, good question. Um, it's individual transformations in my clients. I just love it. So I obviously... <laughs> I can't go into too much detail, but there's things like, for example, a young lad who was suicidal and really depressed and very lonely and, yeah, just turning his life around and being happy and he's got a partner and he's employed and he's he's moving again. There's another guy who was suicidal, hasn't been able to see his kid, his son, for years now. He was just being annihilated, really, by that process. And he's still in it, but his mindset's completely transformed. And now he's sort of doing something similar. He's training to be a therapist and to use it all. I could go on. There's things like that. And it's not always with men as well, you know, work with women and just watching these people slowly, just little by little. It doesn't happen overnight, but just just emerging from rock bottom and um, transforming. They're all my proudest moments. I, I love it. And as a final question, mate, before we move on, what has this journey from journalism to PR to copywriting when you hated it and now therapy taught you about yourself? Um, <laughs> what a massive question. I think it's something like when I have an idea and it has an emotional resonance. I don't need to know how that's going to manifest. Like I can remember thinking when I was at school, oh, I quite fancy being a journalist. And then despite that weird detour (laughs) that I described earlier, it did happen. And then at some point deciding, oh, I think I might want to be a therapist. And that happened. And then thinking, oh, I think I'm actually really interested in men's issues. And then find myself a few years later having personal relationships with some you know some of the leading people in the world in that space it's just it's a beautiful feeling of I'm not always able to connect with it but most of the time I can remember that okay I can trust this thing whatever it is that if something is really interesting to me I should get out of the way of that and just let that process do what it wants to do I don't actually need to know the details you know, I don't need a grand plan. I just follow onto the next thing that's in front of my face and trust that that's like this podcast. Although I know, <laughs> I know I cancelled it last time, so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, yeah. mate. It happens. We've talked about your professional journey. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Zach. I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take you back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Zach we meet here? Early mental health experiences, yeah. I mean, teenage years, smoking weed and spending time in in that type of space, I'd really struggle with now, so... You know, the idea of my 14-year-old daughter doing that is 
just awful. Yeah, I look back and I can see a vulnerable, a happy enough guy, but sometimes a vulnerable guy. I got into a, a really dark place when I was 17, actually. An unfortunate thing happened, which was connected to getting getting very Aroused, shall we say. Oh, right. And aroused, yeah. So I'd just done a bong. I was at someone's house. I went downstairs and crashed out. And then I decided to masturbate. I wanted to masturbate before I went to sleep. And I was so blitzed that I thought it was a good idea to use washing up liquid as a lubricant and woke up in the morning with burning and what then turned out to be quite a lot of damage and I was so ashamed of what I had done Mm. and angry at myself for having done it that I, I kind of spiraled into a really negative pattern of negative thinking and took me a long time to get out of that and I didn't uh, I didn't get any help because I didn't I didn't want anyone to know. But I ma- I did manage to share it in the end with my with my girlfriend Marie later on. You know I, when I lived in London, so a year or two later, and that was the start of a sort of a healing thing. But yeah, I just look back now and I think it's just there's all these silly things that we can end up doing to ourselves without being able to feel comfortable enough getting support so I I spent a lot of time suffering and I think it really affected me I had some dark thoughts yeah Mm. one really powerful thing you mentioned to me off air mate and I think it links to the the sexual shame is this feeling of wanting to turn back time and and I resonated with this hugely because I felt this exact sensation every time I made a big mistake when I was younger and I had an anxiety attack. Now, normally it used to come in the form of me saying something stupid or accidentally offensive to someone and making them upset. And that used mm. to really, really affect me. So can you just explain this visceral feeling to the listeners, Zach, as you literally do want the ground to swallow you up? Yeah, it's it's yeah. one of the most horrific feelings I've had. I remember. So it's thanks for just coming back to that because it's easy to dismiss how difficult this was and how big it was in my day-to-day experience but I would wake up in the morning and just kind of feel normal and then I would remember oh fuck yeah I've permanently damaged my penis and then I would just get this like hot flush of self-loathing and I guess it's almost like I would describe it as cane energy like this disgust at myself and anger at myself and then this like hostility at everything because life and the universe is so fucking shit because I've I was so young and I what it felt like at the time is I've permanently I don't want to use bad language I've permanently ruined my chances of having a normal you know an ability to to function normally sexually and I think at that age I was already you know like most people a bit insecure sexually and I I hadn't found Mm. you know only just really now in this stage of my life kind of completely comfortable but then I was really self-conscious. So I, I was, yeah, I was getting this kind of obsessive loop of thinking back to that day. And like, why did I make that decision then? Why did I do that then? And then after it, when I woke up, why didn't I immediately go and get help at a doctor? Or why didn't I, you know, wash everything off straight away or this and that? Mm. 
and it would just go on and on and on and it affected my ability to have any confidence in any decision that I made and then that sort of spiraled out into other problems so what I then began doing was taking refuge in getting stoned more and and then sexual experiences I would really not really feel okay with unless I was drunk or something so I would use substances as a way of ameliorating the shame and then what happened then I can now see is that <laughs> set into a course a whole series of other consequences later on so just like dysfunctional sexual behavior and just not a healthy relationship with my body and connecting with women I was having sex with and because of that mm. shame that I couldn't voice and like mm. I say it's taken years but I'm <laughs> it just took a long time for me to be okay with it all when did you get to the point where you could own it because it's a very shame filling thing to experience you know I always say as a famous quote from comedian Miss Pat that if you can laugh about your shit you own it or you laugh about your pain you own it when did you get to the point where you could own it and maybe even laugh about it a few years ago so probably probably three or four years ago I think what really facilitated it was the quality of relationships just got better and better so I could touch in with it before with my sexual partners but yeah I noticed in the last few years I'm in a relationship now and I and I had one before that where yeah I don't want this to sound like the partners I had before there was anything lacking of course it was just it was a reflection of where I was and the types of conversations I could have and you know, we meet people at certain times for a reason, I think. So, yeah, just building capacity to be real and to be vulnerable. I mean, it kind of sounds pretty cliched, but I really think it is that. It's like... <laughs> it's as simple as that, mate. It really is. Yeah. We both know, mate, that trust in men for disclosure is massive and stereotypically needs to be at a much higher point than it is for women. So that first conversation you had with the first partner you told about this incident was obviously a really big moment for you. And the mm. way that person reacted was a very big moment because if she didn't react the right way, that could have sent you right back into that dark place to spiral and you could have potentially never told anyone about it again. So just tell me how mm. she reacted and how you built that trust to get to that point. She reacted beautifully it was probably mainly non-verbal. I just, but I can sort of now remember, I can see her as you've brought it up. I know where we were and yeah, she was just supportive and concerned and she recognized and validated that, that I was hurt. It was a real sensitive, tender wound that I was letting her see physically and metaphorically. It was so healing just in that moment. I don't think we really ever talked about it much after that. That was it. That was fine. Just to get it out there. Mm. One thing I found interesting was that despite this horrific incident, you did say that you learned about yourself. And now that might be surprising to my listeners. So tell me what those learnings were outside of obviously the obvious point, which is to never use fairy liquid to <laughs> masturbate ever yeah, please again. Please don't. Just don't do that. Yeah, I can see now when I look back, it, it was a intense 
experience into despair and self-loathing and commitment to negative thinking that in a way it was a sort of experiment really now I look back I went so far down a kind of dead-end road in the dark I went far enough to realize that I actually didn't want to carry on going down there and I chose something else maybe it was something about learning that I have a choice about how my life is going to be and unfold and feel those behaviors that time when I stole my mum's car and wrote it off it was a direct result of feeling that despair I started doing risky things more and more I did a couple of other things as well like jumping off the rocks at South Fistral when it was too big no one was in and in the surf and I sort of got this slightly slightly suicidal tendency started coming out in a way, that last minute move to London to go to university, it, it just seemed like, well, let's see what happens. Because I can always, you know, I can always have a shit life or kill myself, but you know, fuck it, let's just... In a way, it was a strangely liberating feeling. I hope that doesn't sort of sound... I'm not trying to minimise the the weight of suicidal feelings, but... It's something strange happened where after that I could sort of now and again when I needed to, I could always go back to this feeling of, well, there's nothing to lose. So I may as well just try and do stuff, mm. you know, strap in for the ride. We talked about a breakdown you had earlier in the pod. I want to come back to it now because it's around the time you're 30 years old. So you said to me off air, when we refuse to make the change we need to do, our body sabotages us so we're forced to stop. Just tell me what you meant by that. So if I go back to where I was at that age, I was suffering from what's known as in the CBT model, cognitive behavioral therapy at least, which is what I got then. That was my first taste of therapy. It was explained as cognitive impairment my memory I couldn't remember anything I found decision making very difficult I couldn't really think about nuance I couldn't really think so my capacity to to actually function was massively degraded so that's an example of it happening there where it wasn't something I came to as a sort of out of reflection it was just that my body made it impossible for me to do my job so I had to stop doing my job Another time it happened a few years later was when I was really stressed during family court and I was still trying to keep up with all my copywriting stuff as well and my therapy work and my back went and I just couldn't do anything for about a week. I was like crawling to the toilet and stuff and I think that precipitated my decision to just stop all the copywriting. I just couldn't bring myself to do up until that point but it was the right thing again. Both of those things were the right thing but I couldn't get to them without my body shutting down it wasn't going to work forever and before we reflect on your mental health journey the one big decision that you've made since becoming a therapist was to cut down on alcohol and live a life of sobriety so outside mm. of the obvious health benefits why did you make this decision it's very simple i can't work as a therapist unless i'm well unless I'm reasonably okay physically and mentally 
and the endless hangovers that I used to have in my 20s, I wouldn't be able to do this job. That's why it began. And then obviously after a while, realizing that it's actually just much nicer, not feeling like shit all the time. I definitely enjoy a drink, but I wouldn't want to go out and drink like I used to. (laughs) Definitely not. Mm. And as we reflect on your mental health journey, mate, similar question as before. First of all, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? Mm. I think actually this is a hard one to always remember again, but not to put too much value on what I currently think or how I perceive things because it's fluid through time. So I can see if I look back through my journals that I've, I can be, yeah, life and things look different from one week and one month to the next. So I suppose it's, how do I crystallize that? It's, it's something like to take my current position on things with a little bit of a pinch of salt, not take myself too seriously because, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that stable. I'm way more stable than I used to, but I'm getting much better at noticing the impact of things like fear on my decision-making how that can cloud, I can forget what I decided to do or I can forget about a vision that I'm totally committed to if I feel fear or if, I, if I'm if i not doing enough self-care, you know. So it's fluid. That's probably the thing, it's fluid. Zach, I'd love to have you on for a part two. So we're going to ask my final question now before we end the podcast, which is if you could go back and talk to the Zach who had just been told he was going to be a father by his partner at the time, the Zach who had maybe woken up the next day with a severely damaged penis, or the Zach who was experiencing that midlife crisis and trying to find his purpose in the world, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Hmm. All of these experiences are going to provide the wisdom and the humility that you're going to need. This is actually medicine and it's okay. It's okay. The pain is actually okay and uh, the grief is okay. It's not just okay, it's essential. Zach Fine, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me mate thank you it's been a real pleasure thanks freddie well that's all we've got time for in this episode of the just checking in pod a big thank you to zach for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him i'll put some links to where you can follow zach on social media subscribe to the masculinity therapist podcast or find out more about his therapy work and the ceasefire method in the show notes i'll also put a link as i said to temper dv the website link is also temperdv.co.uk as always thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode remember if you've liked what you've heard please do give it a share on social media tell your friends or work colleagues about it if you're feeling generous write us a review and give us a five-star rating apple podcasts if you like what we're doing here at vent please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash vent help uk or you can make a one-off donation to our gofundme or go to our link tree that's linktr.ee slash vent help uk we hope to check in with you again very soon And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.